we're going to do something a little different today. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Or if you're using an app on your phone, go ahead and dial it up. And we're going to read um, a passage to start it off today. And we, we do believe in the public reading of Scripture. In fact, we preach through Scripture every day. We'll go from the beginning of a book all the way through the end, um, as we will be today. But today I want to have you guys read to me. How does that sound? Yeah? Turn to Luke 15. That's right. Yeah, Luke 15. It's in the Gospels. And if you don't have a Bible, we have free copies out there on the table. would love for you to grab one. We'll just keep buying more, promise. Um, so don't feel weird about that. I know if some people feel weird about free things, just grab one on out. But for now, we will have it up on the screen as well. Now I'm going to start you off, and then you're just going to keep reading, okay? Does that sound good? We haven't had any practice sessions. This is it. This is for real. You ready? All right. Verse 11 in chapter 15 of Luke. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Go ahead and read with me. And the younger of them said to his father, And they began to celebrate. Okay. Now, I know there's more to the story, um, but this is the part of the passage that's going to help us see Jesus much more clearly today. So we're going to stop there with that. And I'm going to want you to remember that. Um, Because today, I'd like to talk about being socially awkward, right? Not that I want to be socially awkward, but my wife did inform me this week that I am socially awkward. Um, Some of you can relate all of a sudden don't you say things at weird times and you're like why did I just say that or you laugh at inopportune times you might say something a little too loudly right we're all like that we how many times have you walked away from a conversation you're like that just happened that really just happened why did that just happen I'm like that that's my reality okay 
Um, the other day in, Star- maybe a few weeks ago now in Starbucks, I actually did run into people that are more socially awkward than me, which made me feel good inside. And I'm sitting in a corner trying to blast through some work. I wasn't in one of those moods or realms or gears where I wanted to meet a lot of people and be this uber missionary. I had emails. They had to get done, right? So I'm focused like a laser on the screen. And I'm banging through it. And this young couple comes in, what I would assume to be their first date, all right? So well done taking her to Starbucks, first of all, you know, for a first date, if that is what it was. So they're sitting there and they're talking back and forth. But I don't think they understood how loud they were talking, how loud it was. It was disrupting. So I put my, I had these special headphones that cancel stuff out and they're, they're all built to block that type of thing out. And I've got static and brown noise all just, just storming my brain. And I could still, like a chisel going through concrete, could still hear their conversation in all of its detail. Him awkwardly talking about his athlete's foot. <laughs> right? I, I hope that wasn't a date. Hopefully there's brother and sister. Some, her talking about her fascination of cats and why the 12th and the 13th cat was really important to her that year. Right? And then they argued for 20 minutes on who was the best looking character on Doctor Who. Right? <laughs> Which the answer is no one. Because if you watch that, that show's only for British people, by the way. So if you're watching that, cease and desist. Amen. I'm messing with you. I bet that no one in here struggles with being socially awkward. I bet all of you have an IQ socially that is huge. But I would bet many of you, say maybe most, most of you, probably struggle when it comes to your social IQ and your social awkwardness with God relationally with God. I think many of us might find ourselves struggling, right? Feeling awkward. For some of you, you might attribute that to the fact that you don't like to read. Um, I've heard that out of a lot of people. I just don't like to read, Luke. I've never liked to read growing up. Some of you, it's prayer, right? We, We attribute it highly to the fact that we struggle in prayer. And because of those things, we just don't feel very close. In fact, whenever we're around God or the people of God, we feel awkward. I don't know what it would be for you, but I know that one of the things we do in the midst of our awkwardness and our low social IQ with God, one of the things we do, kind of like a defense mechanism to console or comfort ourselves as we start doing things, right? We busy ourselves with obedience and performance because I think we think, maybe you're like me, think in my mind, if I can't have this relationship that's really deep and intimate with God, then the least I could do is serve Him. That's second best, right? I could serve Him. And then maybe, maybe over time, He sees how much trouble I'm going through to, to serve Him and to please Him, that He'll just give me the intimacy that I long for. He'll give me the treasure of that deep devotion that I think other people have that I just don't have. Almost like the image, I think of the image in my mind of God holding intimacy and and devotion and close-knit relationship in his hand, and and we just perform and we jump and we obey and we jump and we try to get it from him, like we're trying to unlock some special thing from him. And if we do really well, then he'll tip his hand and give us a little bit. But when we do bad, he just raises the hand. Anyone ever feel like that? God, if you just give me some of that love, some of that deep, deep devotion. Well, Luke, I want to, but you just, you can't pull it together. I was about to give it to you just then, but you cussed. Maybe not out loud, but in your heart. So 
maybe next week, raises his hand back up. It's the way it feels like for me sometimes. Maybe some of you, and we look around and we see other people, right? The people that are just enchanted by Jesus and fascinated and they drool all over themselves about how much in love they are with Jesus and they journal all day long and write poetry on the depth of their intimate walk with Jesus. And we look at them and then we look at ourselves and we just feel socially awkward, right? Maybe distance. I'll tell you, I'd say probably the number one reason for many people and a big reason for probably all of us that we struggle with intimacy when it comes with God is because of legalism, of all things. A works-based relationship, which you probably weren't expecting me to say that. You might have been expecting me to say prayer, like I mentioned earlier, or or, uh, maybe you don't read enough Bible, or maybe you need a book, maybe you need a class and a book right? Maybe you need a mentor to go through a class with you and on a book to learn how to have a, and listen, some of those things might help and some of those things might be true, but I'm still going to submit that one of the biggest, if not one of the biggest, or the biggest for some of you, reasons that you are locked up and cannot find an intimacy in a deep love relationship with God the Father is because of legalism. A pharisaical heart, which is beating inside of all of us, I'd say, Paul is going to prove that today. He's going to prove this. You know, Paul, if you've been following us through um, Galatians, we started several months ago or a few months ago. He's actually changing pace and he's changing direction today in Galatians, which some of you are very glad for. The biggest critique that churches get whenever they teach through the book of Galatians is that it's repetitive. And I would say amen. But it's good that it's repetitive. You see, he's, Paul is contending with the same people group to do something very difficult. So he's doing it with different words, and he's doing it with different emotions, and he's coming from different angles. He is exhaustively contending with this church to do what? To, to do things? No, to remember. To remember who they were and what the gospel had done for them. What Jesus living, dying, and living again rewarded them with. He's trying to get them to return to the cornerstone of the foundation of the church that he helped plant so many years earlier. But he left. False teachers came in. They had a smooth preach. They picked it up. And it started to rot the church from the inside out. He's contending with them. So for the last four chapters almost, he's been trying to remind them of who they are and get them to remember who they are. Today is the very first day that he actually tells the church to do anything. Isn't that amazing? Today is the first day that we even find in the last part of chapter 4 that he even says, oh, and do this. Now for the rest of the book of Galatians, you will see Christian ethics and what we do in light of what God has done. Now, this isn't, this isn't some mysterious thing that is only true in Galatians. If you look at anything that Paul wrote, uh, back when we did the book of Colossians as a church, if you look at Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, the way Paul wrote is very informative to us. He always spent the first part of his letters contending with who we are in light of what God has done. It's only, it's only after that that he gets to, and this is what we do in light of what God has done. It's not the other way around. We don't act so that God will act. We act because God has already acted. And he even modeled the format of his letters after that. So it's just now that we're starting to turn the wheel a little bit. He does such a good job. Look at Galatians 4. This is the text that we're going to do today. It is a difficult text. There's a little bit of work to do in it. Um, So I'm just going to jump in if that's okay. Galatians 4, verse 21 through 23. This is what Paul tells the church in Galatia. 
Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, Abraham actually had six sons. The reason it says two here is because he's drawing a distinction for the rest of this passage on two sons, the first and the second son, Isaac and Ishmael, or actually Ishmael and Isaac. That's what he's doing right here. Now, I don't know um, where many of you went to church growing up, and so therefore I don't know what you've been told or taught as regards Abraham, right? Some of you, you just know it from that song at church camp, Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had father Abraham, and this how it goes, and that's probably all you know, right? I will tell you just in a nutshell, Abraham received a promise from God that he would have a son. This is a miraculous promise, understand, because he's old and he's crusty. His wife is old, right? And she's barren. Biologically, chemically, she cannot have kids. Some of you know people like that. Some of you are women like that. You, You cannot have kids. That's who she was couple that loved each other. And God marches in, interrupts their life, and says, you're going to have a son. Not just any son, but a son that would become many sons. In fact, a nation of sons. And now, this nation of sons, this nation of sons, God said, would bless the families of the earth. The seed that Abraham had inside of him, the child that was coming through this promise, would bless the families and the nations of the earth. Now we know today that that is because Jesus Christ was one of the sons in that nation. The son would become many sons, leading to the ultimate son who was Jesus. Now this promise was important to God. It was so important that he repeated it to Abraham, then his son then his grandson, he kept saying it. If you read from Genesis 12 all the way on, you see God saying the same thing over and over again to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will give sons, you will be a nation, it will bless the families of the earth, and the whole time that was going to be done through Jesus. Now, God did not immediately make good on this promise with Abraham, though. He tarried. He waited. No son. The next day, no sun. The next week, no sun. The next year, no sun. There's no sun. So what happened next in the story is very familiar to us. Even if you don't know the story, it's very familiar because you do it. And I do it. And whenever God tarries and he doesn't deliver on where we think he's going to deliver, we start to innovate on God's words, don't we? We start to take things into our own hands with our own wisdom and our own might to procure our own promise because we don't think God is really going to do it. We fail in our trust, and that's exactly what happened with Abraham and Sarah in this story. And you know, as a side note, as I'm thinking about it, isn't it amazing how fast doubt comes after God tells us something? I mean, it doesn't matter how vivid it was, does it? It doesn't matter how colorful the moment was, how tear-soaked your journal pages are, how bookmarked that Bible passage is. It doesn't matter how many witnesses were there, how much emotion was coursing through the room. When God was there, angels are there. It doesn't matter how thick the smoke was. Watch. Watch how long it takes for our hearts to want to innovate on what God has done after he said it if we don't see him move like that fast. Right? How many times have you had to tell someone, Or hear someone tell you, hey, I thought God told you not to do that. Hey, didn't God tell you not to take that job? I 
thought God said that you guys were supposed to be together. I thought God said this was your church home, that that was your church home. I thought God said, and what do we do? What do we fill in the blank with? All right, maybe I was wrong. Well, maybe you were, friend. Maybe you were. Chances are you're innovating. Chances are you're innovating on God's word to you. I will say that. I'll submit that. Now, again, I'm off the topic. I'm going to get back on right now. <laughs> Look at Genesis 16. Genesis 6. Now, I'm going to be going back and forth from this Galatians passage to Genesis because I want to show you in Genesis what Paul is talking about. We're not just going to take him at his word. We're going to go back and look at what he's talking about. In Genesis 16, this is what's going on. This is the innovation on God's word that I'm talking about. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, none, zero. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It, it, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Does that sound like innovation? Does it sound like someone using their own might and their own wisdom to make something happen? That's because that's what's going on. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her, or her husband as a wife. Okay, now, we've got to pause on that for a minute. Because that that's what happens. And that sounds weird, right? And it sounds wrong. It sounds kind of screwy, what just happened. Now, it wasn't so weird to them. That was actually a, it's a cultural artifact, but it is something that was cultural to them. That when the women that were married to the, the alpha male or the paterfamilias of the family line was unable to give children, the servants were given in marriage. This is something that was kind of normal to their culture. It doesn't mean that it was smart, right? It doesn't mean that it was smart. I'm going to say it's not smart to have multiple wives, man. It's just not wise. Raise your hand if you have Netflix. Go ahead. God's not going to get you if you have Netflix. You got it? All right. So you've seen... You know where I'm going. You've seen the show Sister Wives up there, right? It's a little reality show talking about a guy who's married to multiple women. They all live under the same house. Me and my wife were kind of fascinated with the idea. We watched the first episode or two. I don't even know. But when we watched it, before I even hit play on that, because I think they're Mormons. That's the deal, right? They're Mormons. Okay. Before I even hit play on that, I knew it was a bad idea. I knew it was. I thought, this clown, he's going to smile for the cameras. He's going to say how awesome it is and how this is actually better for everybody, you know, to have good. They're going to really put a spin on it, but make no mistake. I don't care how much money he makes, how cunning he is, how charming he is. He's going to come home one day from work and someone's going to be dead. <laughs> There's going to be a dead woman in the house. It's going to be Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick holder. This is going to be a total grudge match. This innovation that's going on here, it's going to form a new lineage of slavery. That's what Paul is going to call it, and that's in fact what it is. A lineage of slavery versus the one that would have come from a promise. Okay? Because now there's no son that's coming from a promise. They've done it themselves. Let's look in verse 24 of Galatians, going back to Galatians. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now it doesn't say it's an allegory. It says it can be read as an allegory. So think more of an analogy, because this wasn't fiction. It really happened. Okay? These women are two covenants. 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, pause. What Paul is saying here is that we have two sons, and one is coming by the power of self-reliance, the power of doing it yourself, leaning on your own wisdom and your own might. The other son represents a, a child coming through the power of grace, through faith, because of a promise. So we have two distinct lines. In fact, can you go ahead and put that up there, that table? Is it the next slide? Boom. Okay, there you have it. So this is a table. It's very left brain of me, and I'm sorry for that, but this can be a little bit of an enigmatic verse, and so I wanted a little bit of a decoder ring for you. This is the distinction that Paul is making. Hagar versus Sarah. The bond woman versus the free woman. Right? Slave sons. You see this? See how it all stacks up? Earthly Jerusalem versus a new Jerusalem. Listen, that new Jerusalem, that does not mean heaven, by the way. All right? That's today. That's the expanding, militant, growing, healthy church. That is the new Jerusalem. Luke, how do you know? Because we have a new king. We have a new king, right? And this new king has you as a child of God in his kingdom. And not only are you in his kingdom, you're not in his kingdom as a slave, You don't belong in this new kingdom under this new king as a servant or even a peasant, but you have royal blood coursing through your veins. You sit at his table. You have the blood of Jesus. And so when you are part of this new Jerusalem, this new kingdom with this new king, you're not a slave. You're not a son. This is important for us here in a little bit. Let's look at verse 27 in Galatians, going back to that. Do I have that up there? All right. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who have a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now this is an important sentence right here, very important for us today. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Okay, what he's referring to and what we're not going to look up happened in Genesis 21, where Sarah happened to see Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, persecuting and mocking the son of promise, her own son, Isaac, right? And what Paul is saying is just as that happened back then, just as we had the persecution of those who were enslaved, for those who were free, we have the same thing going on right now. Right now in this church, we have the same thing going on. He's drawing a distinction. He's drawing a line between then and now. It's very important that we see that. What is he saying then? Why would he say that? Because today, legalists will always persecute the free. If you want to live a free life, free because of the grace of God on your life, a life where you don't have to perform or obey or jump through any shame-based hoops in order to make God proud because he's already loved with you because of what Jesus has done. If you want to live a free life like that, Get ready. Prepare yourself. (laughs) Because legalism will come, and it will lean on you, and it will lean on you hard to make you do what it wants you to do. And watch how it comes up in your heart whenever you see people that are living a little bit more free than you're comfortable with. Watch how fast it comes up in you. Legalism always persecutes freedom. That's what he's saying. If you don't believe me, go ahead and embed yourselves in a group of legalists and drink a beer. 
See what happens. See what happens. Drink a beer. Smoke an electronic cigarette. See what it, they'll say something. They'll say how it's not why. They'll, they'll, they'll start talking. Play poker. See what the legalist will say. Hey, I have a friend, another pastor. They had a poker tournament in the church building. You would be shocked how many people were really cool with the idea of a poker tournament until it was in the sanctuary. Because that's God's house. As if God stops owning things at the property line or something. As if everything's not God's, you know. Can't play. Yeah, but we worship God here. You're supposed to worship God everywhere, you know. But legalism comes up. Hey, tell a fart joke around legalistic people, right? You'll get the riot act on how that's crude joking, you know. How you shouldn't talk about farts. Farts are funny. Come on. It's okay to tell fart jokes. Let's look at verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Why is he saying that? Because he's talking about how it's true now, just like it was true then, that legalism will always persecute and mock the free. So what does the Scripture say now? Cast out the slave woman and her son. And there it is. That's the very first time in the book of Galatians that Paul tells us to do anything. It took him a long time to get around to it, didn't it? For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Let me take you back to Genesis 21 so you can see what's going on right here. Do you have it up there? Okay. So she, this is Sarah, said to Abraham, her husband, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, and this thing was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Paul is saying here, as he, as he echoes Genesis, just as Abraham cast Ishmael out of the household, you guys, you folks, you church, cast the legalists out of the church. Wait, wait a minute. Luke, does this mean that church leaders in the church should just excommunicate anyone who's legalistic? No, because we'd all have to go. Because I'm legalistic. I'd have to lead you right out the door. But what we can't allow is a culture to develop where we use ourselves and serve ourselves to clean ourselves. We can't allow a culture where people come in and they're influential and they start barking and dividing and mocking and persecuting because they want rules to be followed and they hunger after rules and nobody's following their rules. And so they start chopping it up. And now, now that will be trouble. People are going to come in. Listen, we're, we're going to have legalistic people come. I'm legalistic. Folks are going to come in and they're going to have opinions. Some of you have opinions. Have it. Have them. But listen, if it starts dividing, if it starts cutting and persecuting and tearing, as a church, we lean into that. As a church, we help you see Jesus a bit more clearly, right? And if they don't listen, if they don't listen and they resist us and they continue to do it, then we cast them out, folks. We kick their tail out. Does that sound extreme? Does that sound harsh? It's loving. It protects you when we do that. It protects you. Listen, we tolerate a lot of diversity here. A lot of diversity. As I was telling the partnership class this morning, you don't have to believe everything we believe. Totally cool. It's fine. 
We just cannot tolerate division. Diversity, fine. Division, no. You know? We, we travel sometimes, sometimes in our theology, we travel from unhealth to health. And some of you come in here, and I'll tell you right now, you, some of your theology is unhealthy, in my opinion, as I talk to some of you. Your theology is upside down a little. But hey, mine was too six years ago, five years ago, four years ago. I, was, I had some weird little, you know, my, my engine was noisy when it ran theologically. So we give a leash for you to have diversity and to grow in what you understand. Believe what you believe. You could be a partner with this church and not believe everything that we believe as a church. You just cannot divide. You cannot bark. You cannot mock. You cannot persecute. You cannot tear. That's how I would say part of that passage can be applied. Warn a divisive man once and then have nothing to do with him. That's what the Bible says, right? And that starts with me too. That's true for me too, right? Because once legalism gets in and starts like a wrecking ball tearing a church up, it'll rot it from the inside out. Ask Paul. He's having to go through a lot of trouble right now to keep that from happening. So it's very true. Verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Translation, we are as free as God's children. We are not captive as slaves. We are not captive as slaves. We are free to serve our Father God. We are free. I think where I'd like to apply this passage is legalism will do to our intimate devotion to God, as I started off saying. And I want you to remember that story of the prodigal son. I want you to remember that story of the love that occurred between this father who is anxiously waiting and and watching for his long-lost son. And as his son comes, as he sees this mop head coming over the, the horizon, and this guy, you know he had to be torn up. Think about it. Put yourself there. He's just shamed. His dignity's in a pile. He's rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say. Feeling nervous. Feeling incredibly inadequate. Probably second-guessing himself the whole way up the hill. Probably thinking, I need to turn around like immediately and go back. This is stupid. What am I doing? This is stupid. He's never going to take me. That story, that story is where I want to go next. Because let me just say and submit this. No one, no, none of you, no one is intimate with their judge or their boss. Only your father. No one is intimate with your boss. Legally. <laughs> Let me say that. No one is intimate with your boss. No one wants to hang out with their employer or the judge that they just walked out of the courtroom. No, no one wants to do that. I mean, I've had bosses. Have you all had bosses before? You don't just want to go out and throw the frisbee with them. You know what I'm saying? Or watch Thor 2 with them. You don't want to hang out and cry on their shoulder and share lunches and moments. and You don't want to do that. Why? Because they're your employer or your coach or your principal or your judge. And you're trying to get something from them. You're trying to procure favor from them in some way. You can never really... It's always going to be socially awkward. Hanging out with your boss. But this father, he would not even hear about it. Did you catch that in the passage? Some of you have grown up reading this passage. Do you catch that he starts off saying, hey, I just want to be a servant. If you just let me be a servant in this estate, I'll be cool. Dad doesn't even answer that. Dad's like, whatever, we're not talking about that. You can only be my son. You're my son. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to be a servant, a slave, or family. You're my son. That's the only way God will have it. That's why that's in here. I think many times we struggle 
with intimacy, and I think many times we struggle with devotion because we cannot see God to be a father that is to be enjoyed, but we see God as an employer to be worked for, or a judge to be pleased, or a principal or a coach to be made happy, where we make ourselves more lovable before them. And when you're doing that with somebody, you cannot enjoy them. It could be no relationship. Many of you, you just don't enjoy Jesus that much. You're just so busy working for him. Think about it. You'd never say it out loud, but many of you know I'm right. You don't enjoy him too much. He's all right. He's there. He's cool, but you can't enjoy him because you're on the clock. I think that we can see that this is true in our lives mainly when we do one of two things. We hide ourselves or we exalt ourselves. Whenever you're doing one of these two things, you will know that you are seeing God inadequately as a boss or as a judge who's frowning and stoically just sad about you. This is what we do. We exalt ourselves whenever we feel like we've put a few good weeks together and we haven't done that sin, right? And so we feel like we're entitled. Like, hey, man, I'm here to worship. Let's go. Like, you're entitled to be there. Like, everything's cool. Like, last week you couldn't do it, but now you can. And then watch how quick we start judging other people. And we just thank God that we're not as dirty as they are and we don't struggle from the same sins they do, right? All of a sudden, their homosexuality is worse than what you do online, right? All of a sudden, their tattoos are worse than your mouth. And we do that. We judge other people. We start to measure them and measure ourselves against each other. We measure how we do based on how they do, and we measure how we do based on how we did last week. And that's how we score points for ourselves. And another thing we do is we avoid community. And we avoid worship and we hide ourselves if we've been sinning. This is a big one. This is a big one. Lots of people, lots of people, they sin or they go through some sort of a sin pattern or they return to the same thing and they vanish, right? They vanish from both community and worship. I say community because that's our horizontal relationships, worship because it's our vertical relationships, but we disembody ourselves from both because we feel too dirty and too shamed to show up, Right? And what we do is we, we kind of lash ourselves and punish ourselves. That's how we clean ourselves. And we have control over it when we do that. We actually control our own sanctification, and we don't even need God. All we have to do is just feel a little better inside. And then when we feel better, we go back, right? And then we sin, and we exit, and we go back, and we exit. And you can see it on people. You can see it in yourself. It's tough. You're saving yourself when you do that. By depriving yourself, you're cleaning yourself. You don't really need Jesus. You're putting yourself on the cross. That's what's happening when you do this. I don't understand the total psychology in that. But I do know whenever I'm apologizing to somebody else for something that I've done, which is really boneheaded, I've been a clown, and maybe a week later, two weeks later, I come back and I apologize, I tell somebody how bad I feel inside. Don't you do that? I don't know how bad, I've been feeling so bad, I haven't slept at all, you know, I'm just in a really bad place, I just hope you can forget. What are we doing when we do that? We're lashing ourselves, because if we hurt, they accept us, Right? If we hurt, they accept us. That's what we do when we retreat and we get away from gatherings like this or living rooms or parties or just hanging out with the dudes. That's what we do when we retreat away from the Bible or worship or prayer or anything. We're lashing ourselves, punishing ourselves, paying some sort of a weird penance so that maybe God sees how much we hurt inside and he just accepts us. That's not how he accepts us. 
But this produces this weird, vicious cycle where wherever we feel sleazy and dirty and grimy, we hide ourselves. But whenever we feel righteous and entitled, we exalt ourselves. And whenever you've done that, you're not seeing a God with prodigal love correctly, and you're becoming very socially awkward. Very socially awkward. This is what Adam did, by the way. Hid himself or exalted himself. That's where we get this from. He sinned, and what did he do? Made himself uh, some little leafy pants out of fig leaves, and then he hid in the bushes. He did that because he was ashamed, and he had sin, right? And then God comes, and what does God do? He's, he, he finds their covering insufficient. So he kills some sort of an animal, what we're not told, and he covers them more adequately to cover the shame and to provide relationship between the two, pulling him out of the bushes. You don't belong in the bushes. Why is that even in Genesis? Any of you ever stopped to ask that? Why is that weird rabbit trail even in the book? It's because it's pointing to Jesus, a better lamb who would be slain, and his body would be torn, and he would cover our shame, and he would provide a way where we could be intimate with a Father God, no need of bushes, no need of those leafy pants. But what do we do? We perform, we perform, we perform, we do, we do, we do, because that is our fig leaves. Those are our fig leaves. That, that's how we cover our shame. That's why it's in the Bible. This parable rings true when I think about the garden, what God has done in the garden. Think about this parable of, that we all read together. It did not matter. It does not matter how much slop you have on your face, how bad your breath is from eating pig pods, whatever a pod is. I don't even know. But it, whatever that was, it doesn't matter how bad you looked, smelled, how goofy you sound. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because like the guy in this parable, you were seen as a prized possession. In fact, if God put a value on you, well, he did. But when God put a value on you, it is the exact same value as he saw his own son. Well, you've got to get this to really understand the gospel. When he sees you, he sees the same value as he sees his own begotten son. That's how much, he doesn't see the pig slop on you. He doesn't value you that way. I think we don't get that though, and I think we see God, I do, maybe you're with me. Whenever I sin and I'm coming, I think I imagine God to be leaning up against the wall waiting on the porch. Can't quite decide whether he's going to run and engage me or not. And here, my fluffy head comes over the horizon, I'm all stink and sound weird and, you know, everything's goofy. And I think we just believe that he's thinking in his mind, well, look who decided to show up, you know? Well, he's got some explaining to do. He thinks he could just walk right back in and just be my son? Well, he's got another thing coming. He's got some stuff to prove. He's got some stuff to do. He's, he can't just get my trust back like that. He's got actions we need to see. I think that's how we see him. But that's not how Jesus paints him, is it? We don't see any of that. We see the opposite of that. That's what I love about this. That's what I love about the prodigal story. People make this a story about salvation. It doesn't have to be that. I think a lot of times how people interpret this passage is wrong. I hope you're seeing it in the light of what is supposed to be read today. God sees Jesus in us. If you're a son or you are a daughter of God the Father living in his kingdom, a new Jerusalem, 
He sees Jesus in you. In fact, when you were baptized, that's what baptism is. You're buried in the waters. You're buried in Christ. You come up a new creation. The past is gone. You have a new DNA. A new DNA. And Jesus makes this way for us, this experience that we can have an intimacy with God, right? Not slaves, not peasants, only sons. But because many of you do not believe that, you struggle in getting to know dad because you're on the clock. He's an employer, right? Coach, judge. Imagine, there is no second chapter to this parable, but imagine if there was one, right? Just think. Picture this son waking up the next morning, right? Probably the first good night's sleep he's had in a while, right? Slept in, maybe. The sun is bright. The breeze is crisp. He wakes up. He stretches. He's in dad's house again. And he could smell the breakfast downstairs, right? And it's not pods anymore. It's bacon and eggs because bacon's okay. And he's smelling it. And there's coffee being brewed. And he's excited. And the servant knocks on the door and says, Hey, bro, dad wants you downstairs. He's excited to have breakfast with you, right? Imagine. And just imagine. What if that son said, Hey, well... I can't go. I can't go because I still stink a little bit. I mean, I washed and I scrubbed as much as I could, but it's pig poo. And I'm just saying, it's tough to get off. And, and I, you know, I, I'm still kind of grieving over how I spent all that inheritance and that whole thing. And I picked up a speech dialect there when I was in the foreign lands and my hair all looks Zoolander. And I just, I don't look and feel and sound like I need to look and feel and sound to be before the king. That servant would be like, what are you talking about? We saw you coming over the hill. Whenever God loved you and whenever your father just embraced you, you were a total mess. Go downstairs and have breakfast with him. What are you doing? But I I can't imagine him having that social awkwardness about him. I can see myself having it. I think Paul is fearful that many of these Galatian Christians are going to deny Jesus as a sufficient sacrifice and become slaves again. And they have become very socially awkward around a prodigal love that comes from God the Father. And it's killing Paul to see this. It's killing him to see it. And he hates that legalism so much that he says, get it out the door. Get it out the door. It's not to define who you are. So listen, you guys are starting a new year. We're still in January. Some of us are still getting around to starting some resolutions. And I know, if anyone in here is serious about resolutions, I guarantee it was on everyone's list. I want to have a better devotional life with God, right? I want to be more intimate with God. So we usually put the obligatory blocks in that thing. I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more, right? Am I right? Those are the two things. I'm going to read more of the Bible. I'm going to read a couple more books than I did last year, which means maybe two, right? And I'm going to pray. And I think that's great. You should. I mean, it, it, whatever you prayed and read last year, do it more this year. We are big fans of the Bible. Read it, memorize it, preach it, pray it, sing it. We love the Bible. And we love prayer too. Pray, 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 pray. Pray when you're alone, pray in groups. We believe it. But can I suggest, as you start this new plan, if you want an intimate devotional life with God, I'd like to submit you recast how you see God the Father. Recast it. You've got this caricature built up in your mind of who he really is. And it's blocking everything you're trying to do. And it's making it very awkward between the two of you. Some of you just do not enjoy Jesus very much. Some of you just don't enjoy God. 
And you'd never say that out loud, would you? Because it feels heretical, right? It feels like, ooh, if I say that, then it's like I really mean it. Some of you need to say it. Some of you need to pray that. Does that sound weird? Some of you need to just straight up tell God, God, I'm, I'm afraid I don't enjoy you very much. You don't think he knows that? You don't think that honesty would help? God, I just don't enjoy you very much. I'm not liking this thing. I'm tolerating it. I just don't like it. Don't enjoy you. And the, fo- the reason is because you're trying to make him like you. And so he's become this overbearing boss. Could I just say something? And I say this all the time. I jeopardize it losing any strength or power because of the repetition, but I think it's appropriate here. On your worst day, if you're a Christian, on your worst day, in your worst moment, in the middle of your worst thought, you are highly favored, highly prized, and highly loved, and you cannot be loved any more than you are in that moment. On your worst day, Think about it. I've had some worst days. I've had some moments. Even, even with the thoughts in your head that you think to yourself, no one could ever know I just thought that, ever. That goes to the grave because it's so screwed up and it's so weird. No, I mean, in the, in the middle of your deepest point of depravity, as a Christian, you are highly favored and highly loved, and he cannot love you any more than he does at that moment. He loves you with the fury and the power and the direction that he loved his own son. That's hard. It's hard to embrace. But think, and as I said a few weeks ago, Jesus come busting out of the water of baptism, and God thunders from the heavens and says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what he says about you. But Luke, how could he be pleased with me? All this, this long line of baggage I bring with me, the thing I did today, how could he be pleased with me? He's pleased not with your actions or inaction. He's pleased with the action of Jesus because you could not act. It's Jesus' actions that pleases God. And as a Christian buried and with the new identity on, he is pleased with you. He loves you. You are his prodigal son. That's the punchline. You came from a free woman or in a child of grace. You are are free. You are free to enjoy Jesus. Did you sin today? You're free to enjoy Jesus. Are you locked up in some weird addictive pattern? Did you know that you're free to enjoy Jesus? You're free to enjoy your father God. You're free to do that. How do you see him though? Many of you, and I'm finishing with these thoughts, many of you have this limping intimacy that you've had as long as you can remember. As long as you can remember. And you might even admit today that you don't enjoy God very much. You might do that. And you might even relate to the prodigal son as he's all just drenched in grime, right? And is unlovable. But you have a real hard time seeing yourself as anything other than that prodigal son. You have a hard time seeing yourself anything but being grimy and scandalous. You can't see yourself as celebrated and loved. Friend, do you understand that intimacy will come when you believe God when he says how much he loves you? But you've got to believe it and just be good with that. Right? Failure here. It's when we detach from community. We detach from worship. We detach from these things. And you do it because you believe that Jesus...
on the cross was just totally insufficient. It was good, it wasn't enough. So I got, I got to make up for it. I got to clean myself up. I got to take him off the cross because he was inadequate. I have to put myself on the cross because I need to pick up where he left off. And that's what we do. That's what was going on in Galatia. And then finally, I'd say there's many of you in here now, maybe most, that are deep in sin of some kind right now. You walked in here with it. You have this sin. And, and I talk, you're listening to me, and I'm talking about things like enjoying God and having pleasure and, and being this, this son who's excited, or his daughter to be excited around dad. And you're like, whatever. I can't even get halfway there, Luke. I mean, I, can't, I, I see it, but I can't see it. Listen, I will, not as a qualification, I will say our sin over time, it starts to build callous on our heart. The Bible talks about it. Building calluses on our heart. And it, and it becomes this weird partnership we make with sin where we'll let it live in our life if it doesn't expose us too bad. And we place this idol on our heart and it shares the throne with God. That really happens. And the only time we feel sorrow, Paul calls it worldly sorrow, which is a sorrow that we got caught or a sorrow that it's kind of making things, I don't know, inconvenient for me. That's a sorrow. But that's not where it's supposed to drive you. Your sin and your predictable patterns are supposed to drive you towards godly sorrow. Where you have this righteous indignation against the sin. But you're free to be a son. You're free to be a daughter. And no way am I saying that you enjoy and make a partnership with your sin and enjoy God. You're going to find that very difficult to do. Because God is ferociously jealous for your heart. And he will not take anything but all of it. And if you start putting things on your heart, you watch. You watch how fast he starts pushing it right back off. And that's out of love for you. That's grace to you. Right? So, I'll tell you what. Go ahead and stand with me. and We'll jump into this last part of the service as we, we have worship. Um, but one of the things I want you to think about as we're singing songs, we're singing songs, the team's going to come up. You'll notice a trickling of people to go back and take the, the communion, which is back there, those two tables, right? Those tables represent God's broken body and his spilt blood. It's a visible gospel for us to take, a fellowship with God that we enjoy, right? So if you're a Christian, we'd love for you to go back there. In fact, it's even better if you go back there with somebody, pray with them, take communion with them. Listen, if you're far from God, don't understand the Jesus thing don't even understand what communion's about, don't worry about it. Just hang out here with us. Read the words. Sing if you want. We would just invite you to take Jesus instead. Take Christ and his gospel instead. And we'll have people back there that will help you, that will pray with you. If you're just confused, you want to know more, Wes will be back there. I'll be back there. Chase will be back there. And Charlie will be back there. You'll see some people. And we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. Right? But what I want you to focus on, what I want you to pray about, do I really enjoy Father God? I mean, really enjoy Him. Look forward to be around, right? Excited, sad to leave the presence of. That's what it means. When I enjoy people, parting is sorrow. Oh, God. For most of us, man, we just, we look at the clock, right? How much do you really enjoy God? And did you know that you could enjoy him fully. And he's not only cool with that, he's wanting that. He is a prodigal father with a prodigal love. Boy, I hope you see this. I hope you see this. Just respond. I mean, I, I don't really have much else to say, but just respond to God's love. Right? 
Let me pray for you.